Surpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning. It's like an overcast winter morning here in Berkeley. So this morning, we are uh, we're having a one day sitting here at Berkeley, and uh, I think a lot of you are participating in the sitting. Um, I woke up not feeling well, and so I've been somewhat on the sidelines for the earlier part of this morning, uh, and I'm just taking care of uh, my energy and taking care of my stomach. Uh, but hopefully I can, uh, offer you some words or some thoughts that, uh, will resonate. So, um, earlier this week, I participated in a discussion, uh, with a number of people that, um, I found very provocative. Um, Lori's sister, Debbie, is a skilled genealogist. And she's done um, quite a bunch of work on uh, different sides of my family and has located uh, several cousins on my father's side who are now in my life. Uh, a few years ago, um, she connected me with uh, someone here in Berkeley that I didn't know. Um, it's Professor David Levine, who is uh, at, the, at UC Berkeley's Haas School. Uh, wonderful man. Uh, and he works on, he's an economist who works on understanding and overcoming barriers to uh, improving health in uh, poor nations around the world. And so this has been a rich and valued uh, family connection for me. So David uh, wrote a couple of couple of months ago, wanted to put together a discussion uh, with himself, uh, a student, a former graduate student of his, who has become a spiritual seeker. And then also with David's, um, his brother-in-law, who is, um, his brother-in-law is Rabbi Bert Jacobson who was the founder of Kehila Synagogue in, in Berkeley, which is a, a progressive Jewish community that uh, some of you may actually attend. 
uh, and we've met a couple of times, uh, but this was the first one of these meetings and kind of very rambling discussion that uh, that Bert was able to attend, and it's the first time that I've met him. Um, it was really wonderful to meet Bert Jacobson. Uh, he's really the kind of rabbi and teacher that I wish I had met in my youth. Uh, I'm sure that uh, that the rabbis that I encountered uh, in my childhood, uh, I'm sure they were good people and well-intentioned, uh, but there was something of the, it was just, I didn't get the spirit of the teachings or the spirit of the religion. Uh, and if, if I had met someone like Bert, uh, you know, perhaps my spiritual path would have been different. Uh, this reminds me, you know, it reminds me of uh, a speculation that, uh, that Sojin Roji had or something in his autobiography. He wrote about his early religious quest. Uh, and he writes, I wanted a spiritual teacher and community. I wanted to connect with a Hasidic rabbi, but I couldn't find one. This is when he was a young man in San Francisco. Uh, Jewish mysticism was frowned upon and ignored at that time in favor of materialistic prosperity. This attitude had always turned me off. My understanding was that the Jewish people had a mandate to bring peace and harmony to the world. In my heart, I longed for a universal practice that would embrace everyone through choice rather than birth. At that time, I was inspired by Martin Buber's Hasidic tales. I was completely swept away by the deep mysticism, the simplicity, the power of faith, the idea of the person as the pillar connecting heaven and earth, and the insightful logic of the tzaddik, the holy man. I liked the way the disciples gathered around the teachers in small communities, studying and practiced, practicing together. I also like the idea of the hidden tzaddik, the one who appears as an ordinary person, a fool or an idiot, but in reality is a great sage. In Zen, I found some of these parallel qualities. I studied a little bit of Kabbalah, a little bit of the inner mysteries, and I realized at that time that the great meaning of all this mysticism was just to be a true person, a mensch. That's all you have to do. Uh, that's the whole. That's what the whole thing means. When I met Suzuki Roshi, and he said beginner's mind, I knew right away what that was. I just totally connected with it. And I've heard Sojin say that uh, that Suzuki Roshi was the the Hasidic master that he had been looking for. And maybe that's the case. Anyway, in this discussion last week, I was surprised listening to, to Bert Jacobson that the spiritual model that he invoked uh, was not a Hasidic wise man from 
Martin Wooper's tales of a, or of the or the stories of the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, but the model was the Buddha. And the Buddha's story had inspired him from the time he had begun his rabbinical studies. And he said a little bit about why. So the Buddha, as we know him, Shakyamuni embodies or epitomizes the spiritual seeker. He was born to great privilege and he had been promised a position as a wealthy ruler. And he intuitively sees there's something wrong with this picture. Uh, with his own insight, he understands that this predestined life as a prince or a king is not going to bring him real happiness. And, you know, he's plagued by uh, doubts and dissatisfactions, um, you know, all through his youth. Um, you know, I've often uh, wondered if uh, the Buddha could uh, have uh, nowadays would be uh, have a diagnosis of depression because uh, none of these things were satisfactory for him, even though he was surrounded by prosperity and love uh, and all of that. So he was kind of a late bloomer, perhaps. It took him until the age of 29 to, uh, to actually take a journey outside the gates of the, of the palace. It's, it's kind of a long time within, within one building, you'd think. Uh, sort of gives a new meaning to the expression sheltered existence. Um, so on this excursion into the city of Kapilavastu, he takes in four sites. You all probably know the story, but I'm, I'm just going to repeat it. So he sees, as he's driving through the city, uh, He's looking out the windows of his chariot and he sees an old man, uh, a sick person, a corpse at the side of the road, and a renunciate or a monk. And at least in the context of the story, all of these, these sites were new to him. He had not encountered them before. Uh, and he takes inspiration from the model of the renunciate and decides that there has to be another way to live. And I think that that, um, that was some of what inspired Bert. And I think I would imagine that 
that this is true for for some of us here, right here, that we come to a place in our life and we recognize there has to be another way to live. And we have this path that's been uh, that's been well trod for us. Uh, but this is, uh, and I think this is very much Sojin's story at the point at which he begins his spiritual quest in a, uh, you know, in a serious way, uh, he was in his late twenties, early thirties. And, you know, he was looking for a way to live that was meaningful. So, um, the Buddha-to-be renounced his royal positions and he renounced his family, which uh, I think understandably might raise some other questions for us, which, which we won't go into quite, quite yet. Uh, and he went off to the forest he shaved his head and made the vow to live as a renunciate, depending on alms for his food and all of his needs. So hearing Bert's story, um, which of course is uh, quite familiar to me in a sense it was as if I were hearing it for the first time uh, and the lesson that that he drew from this story and that I think we can reflect on is simply the Buddha's determination his his absolute determination to wrestle with the problem of human suffering and how to end it. And, you know, Bert saw this story through the lens of the Jewish tradition that, that he felt at home in and very close to. And I feel some resonance with that. You know, I've, of, I've often been asked um, why, you know, many of our prominent Buddhist teachers uh, are Jewish in background. Um, think about Sojin Roshi, Bernie Glassman, Norman Fisher, Blanche Hartman, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Bhikkhu Bodhi, John Kabat-Zinn, and, and so on. Uh, I once did talk to a, a reporter for the, for the Los Angeles Times um, who was doing a story 
on, on uh, Judaism and Buddhism. And he had made this, this wasn't that long ago. This was about 10 or 12 years ago. He made this great discovery that there were all these Jewish Buddhist teachers. It was like really big news. Actually, it was, it, the article when he wrote it was appeared on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. So this is real news. <laughs> Jews are doing Buddhism. Um, uh, it was very funny to me. But my response to why this is the case is that as a people, the Jewish people are intimate with suffering and oppression and I've been wrestling with the problem of suffering for many centuries. Uh, you know, if you, you know, if you would propose to a Jewish person, it's like, oh, here's a way to end suffering. Oh, that sounds good. You know, or that sounds good, maybe. What's, what's the catch? <laughs> but, um, but this is not just true of people who are Jewish. I think what we're seeing is that this focus on the nature of suffering and the end of suffering is also deeply appealing to people in other oppressed communities. Uh, you know, and so we see the growing presence of of African American students, African American teachers, um, and practitioners from other communities here. Um, I think that with the work that that I've been participating in in India, uh, you have a a vital Buddhist movement among the most oppressed classes in India because the practice that we have addresses the nature of suffering. So um, Bert Jacobson decided to continue on the path of Judaism. And, you know, he completed his rabbinical studies and, uh, he met uh, some of the other prominent people in the Jewish spiritual world who were also wrestling with wrestling with the problem of suffering and also looking at suffering uh, not just in a personal dimension but in the context of society. And so. Uh, in the 80s uh, with others, he founded Kehillah in Berkeley, which describes itself as a spiritual, a Jewish spiritual home for progressive people uh, based on a spiritual mandate, getting this from their website, a spiritual mandate to heal and repair the world, uh, which is a central theme in Judaism, which is exactly what, what Sojin saw when he looked at uh, what Judaism meant to him, a uh, central theme in Judaism by showing compassion to all, 
and actively working towards social justice, peace, and environmental sanity. So, honestly, although I have this Jewish ethnic and cultural background, I don't feel called to Jewish religious practice. So I have come to respect it. And I have been studying it in recent years. Uh, you know, having to set aside, I had a lot of Jewish education when I was uh, preparing for bar mitzvah. Uh, but as I said, it was it was quite dysfunctional. But I'm not looking for another spiritual path. Uh, my path is the Buddha's way. It's Sojin Roshi's way, Suzuki Roshi's way. And that is complete for me. But if I listen carefully, I hear in their teachings that call to heal the world, what mystical Judaism calls tikkun olam, which is the practice of drawing together the divine light that inhabits everything. Uh, I think about the koan, each of us has his or her own light, uh, but it's hard to see it sometimes. So that's true. In we're in the in the practice of in the effort of repairing the world. We're drawing together these light light which has been dispersed in the shards of our broken world. And our broken world is also uh, or our difficult world is that's the world that we live in. That's the Buddha field that we inhabit. So sometimes if you read, you know, in the early texts, um, The Buddha field that we live in is called the Saha world. And uh, so every, in sort of Buddhist cosmology, every Buddha has, its, has his or her own Buddha field uh, and it has certain characteristics. So the Buddha field of uh, Shakyamuni Buddha that we inhabit is the Saha world, which means uh, something like the world in which you have to endure things. So we have to endure various kinds of suffering, personal suffering, social suffering, uh, and that in the course of this endurance, that the, the process of, 
of living in this world is the process by which we wake up. We wake up in this world. Uh, and the opportunity of the Saha world is to become a Buddha. So for me, this expression Tikkun Olam points to something that is really beyond Judaism. It's something profoundly human. Uh, I think that widely there's an impulse that humans have to heal and repair. Uh, to set ourselves at ease, to set those around us at ease. Uh, and it's also true that our understanding can be incomplete or flawed, uh, that challenges that it's, it can be obscured by self-interest. Uh, at the same time, we yearn for happiness and for ease of mind. Sometimes we wish for God or the Buddha or some great being to hand us this happiness or this peace. But the practice that we have been given is that the kingdom of heaven, if you will, is already within us. Uh, of course, so is hell, but we have the opportunity to choose. And we're encouraged to make that choice. So the Buddha is often described, I mean, think about, think about uh, healing the world. The Buddha is often described as a great physician. And all of his teachings are very specific instructions for healing. Uh, you know, if you read the, read the Pali Suttas uh, or you read any of the sutras, what the Buddha is teaching us is a way to bring ourselves back into balance in the context of the whole world. Uh, so it's healing for ourselves as individuals but also as individuals who create communities and societies, bringing ourselves, bringing our communities into balance. Uh, so not only did the Buddha present himself as just a, a singular and exemplary uh, model of individual enlightenment, but he did this by creating a Sangha. He did this by creating a model community uh, that was based on equality, that was based on generosity and kindness and on compassion and wisdom. And I think that 
we do our best to realize this right here in the midst of our own Zanga. We've been doing this in Berkeley. It's what we were encouraged to do by our teacher and, and his teachers. And it's quite amazing that we've been doing this, you know, even through these two wearying years of pandemic, we're still, we're here on Saturday, we're here in Sashin, we're here uh, caring for each other. So when the Buddha, when the Buddha began to teach, it's really interesting to look at the, at the arc of his teachings. Um, when he created the Sangha, uh, the first thing he did was he went and he found his five close friends and he showed them the Dharma. And then he traveled about uh, through the region of, of North India uh, and he just traveled about and he sat down uh, after having received food and talked with people who came to visit with him. Uh, he listened to them. Uh, he allowed them to ask questions. He asked questions of them. Uh, whether they were sincerely seeking his teachings or even if they were uh, inclined to challenge him. Uh, he met them each and drew them into his community. I think it's, it's also noteworthy to see that in time, even though he had stepped away from his family, which, which we might see as a, a really a painful event. It's painful to us anyway, it's painful to me. Um, in time, he brought his, his mother, his son, and his wife into the Sangha. And all of them became arhats. They all became uh, enlightened beings who were then free from the cycle of uh, rebirth. So he didn't leave them behind. And he taught his own his own Shakya clan and the other communities in that region of North India, what's now North India and Nepal. Uh, and within several hundred years, the power of his healing words and his practices spread throughout India and they remained very strong cultural 
influences and values for 1500 years. You know, when you go to India, you know, you can, you can visit uh, these uh, temples and caves and, you know, architectural remains that point to this practice going back, going back very long, very long time and also enduring for a very long time. And here we are 2,500 years later, we're still practicing the Buddha's way to the best of our understanding. And we include his teachings, but also we include the wisdom of many generations of teachers from different cultures and uh, different communities and, and countries from our own. So all of this, I think, is his, you could see as the practice of Tikkun Alam, of drawing these pieces back together to repair the world. We talked on Thursday evening in, in the, the class that I've been leading on uh, Three Doors of Enlightenment uh, to, we talked about the meaning of liberation. Uh, so for, for Sojin, looking at Sojin's teachings, uh, he says that this liberation or enlightenment is the reconciliation of all dualities, which sounds kind of up abstract. But then when you put it into actual terms, actual events, he's, he writes, you and I may be angry with each other before enlightenment. And when we become enlightened, uh, when we become enlightened, we reconcile anger with serenity. After enlightenment, we may still get angry, but that anger is not the same. We are not attached to that feeling. Enlightenment is the beginning of our practice. Enlightenment is what motivates us towards practice. The fact that you want to practice means that enlightenment that is always with you needs somehow to be expressed. So I think it's that the light that appears to have been scattered what we wish to do is to draw these pieces together and inhabit that light ourselves and to include everything. Thich Nhat Hanh writes about an enlightened being or an awakened being as one who is able to embrace the whole of space. His capacity includes all the three chiliocosms, three 
three trillion cosms are basically the universe. It means the capacity of the heart is very great. The capacity of his or her heart can include all the sand, include all the worlds, even though they're as numerous as the sands of the Ganges. So this is, when I think about the meaning of awakening or the meaning of liberation, uh, I can think of it in the context of Tikkun Olam, of drawing these pieces together. Uh, and they are the, they are the pieces, the fragments of my own life and mind and feelings, but also the fragments of our own society and culture and world. And this is an important light to sustain these days because I, I can't think of a time when in my life that seems more volatile, volatile and uh, divided. And so as a practitioner, I want to be devoted towards the shaping of wholeness, the shaping of connection, and not the shaping of division. And this is really hard. This is really hard practice. I mean, I just, all of us, I think, read stuff that uh, we find deeply disturbing, irrespective of what our social or political ideas may be. I think about a very simple expression that our friend Karen Dakotas uh, shared with shared with us. Um, it's a very simple sentence. Do you want to be right or do you want to be in connection? Do you want to be right or do you want to be in connection? And It's really good to stop and think about that, especially when you feel right. I have to remind myself of this all the time. So, um, how can we continue to embody the Buddha's principles of healing, the Buddha's principles of including whatever arises in our world and not excluding it, but acting towards it with curiosity and compassion.
it's not that I have the answer, uh, but I can't see any other way to live. Uh, and I think this is what this is what we get from all of our teachers. And I hope that we can take it, each of us can take it deeply into ourselves and allow it to uh, to blossom in the world. Uh, because we need we need the light, we need the flowers. We need the connection. So I think that's where I'm going to end. You may have some comments or some questions or some thoughts. Thank you, Hosan. Um, when you were talking about the uh, story of Buddha kind of after he became, after he was enlightened, wandering around India and hanging out and talking to people. He didn't advertise. And um, it made me think about our teacher, Sojin, and how BCC got started. Because in a certain way, he did the same thing. He found a house, he didn't advertise, and he waited and people showed up and he didn't, he didn't say he was a teacher. He just used himself as an example and he practiced and he sat and, and people came. And so it reminded me of that story that he, he told me about how he got started, how BCC got started similar to what you talked about. Yes, thank you. I mean, that's that's also how Suzuki Roshi uh, got started. And I think that that in in his in the memoir section of Sojin's book, we uh, that I quoted said, I like the way the disciples gathered around the teachers in small communities studying and practicing together. Uh, that's that's actually his his model, and there were other models of Buddhist teachers at the time. Some whose practice was to, uh, you know, go around and lead sessions. But uh, the model that we've been given is is just to stay in this place and just and really dig in. I think it's important for us to dig into our community and then gradually the tendrils of that community can can extend. But if we're not located in, if we're not located, if we are not in some place, then uh, there's something really missing. And I think that a lot of what I see in uh, spirituality around the world is that almost all of it um, has very powerful roots in place. And this is why it's it's very good for us to uh, to acknowledge uh, the ancestors 
of this place. So the indigenous people, the Ohlone and other, and other groups that, that lived here, uh, and to recognize that we were living in a space that, that others have lived in for thousands of years and that their displacement may not be, uh, their displacement may be by virtue of violence or exclusion, uh, but still uh, these energies and spirits remain with us. It's very quiet today, uh, Sandeep. Hi, Hassan. Morning. Hi. Um, I wanted to really express my gratitude for such strong medicine. It's really opened me up, and I do feel a blooming. And I think it's funny because I'm wearing the BZC shirt. I see. I see. I yeah. It's like a portal. Oh my gosh! The universe is so funny. Um, I attended Lucy's talk last week at the San Francisco Zen Center on the Zoom. And she expressed her offering uh, to Sojin um, in memory of his anniversary of his death. And it nearly brought me to tears. I was so thankful and I wanted to acknowledge that Sojin's presence. I really feel it. Um, and my mind is so visual, so I feel like I can feel the roots going in and a flower blooming. And Lucy's talk last week was um, about the Chinese plum blossom that blossoms in this time of, uh, of winter. In the winter, yeah. Yes, and it's, so it's a stunning bright yellow burst of glory um, against this magnificent, magnificent snowy backdrop. So she shared pictures during her talk. So I felt like I was on a journey with her. Um, but what I wanted to share is I feel like that blossom is blooming. So I feel hope arising. And thank you for that. Thank you. You know that the name of our temple is Old Plum Mountain. And uh, it was very... Some of us who've been here a long time remember right in the middle of the of the courtyard, uh, there was a huge plum tree, uh, which every winter rained down uh, white blossoms, you know, covering the cor courtyard, and then every spring, I guess, rained down sticky plums that got all over everything, more than anyone could eat. Uh, and it was very sad when uh, the tree was uh, ill and had to be cut down. Uh, that was, it was like when those arborists came to cut it down, it was just like losing a friend because uh, it had been there from, from the beginning. But yes, uh, the that image of plum and plum blossoms is really it's very powerful for us. Thank you, uh, Judy Fleischman. Well, that's funny because <laughs> I put my hand hand down um, on on hearing that interchange. 
Uh, I, I just, um, Hosanna, I was very taken by your talk and also very much with me are um, uh, Bishop, Archbishop Tutu's uh, recent passing and MLK Day approaching. So yes. just this um, sense of these pillars uh, in our midst and um, that somehow uh, it, it, it throughout that the power of, of spiritual friendship, you know, like Bishop Tutu and, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh. So it's, it's wonderful just to hear of, um, in a way, uh, one perspective on that and what you read of uh, Sojin's early journey. Um, I once uh, heard someone speak of another teacher, a Zen teacher, uh, saying, um, Roshi is my Rebbe. Mm -hmm. And um, at Congregation Roman in New York, uh, there's been a wonderful course going on um, called uh, One God Clapping based on Rabbi Alan Liu's uh, book about his own journey of practicing at BCC for 10 years and then becoming a rabbi. So just a lot of these um, streams and not just Judaism and Buddhism, um, but just it feels like we're we're entering an era or maybe we're revisiting that the path isn't about labels or identities so much as inhabiting those to um, harness the power of true friendship. You know, what I heard you pointing to is connection while being in integrity with our identities, um, communities, cultures, expression. And, and that feels to me like a very exciting and a very hopeful um, approach to this time. So I really appreciate uh, you Thank offering you. that perspective. Thank you. And I, I, uh, I kind of assume that you know Bert Jacobson or you know, I've heard him. Uh, and he brought up Alan Liu to me. Uh, as he was close to him, but you know, one of the things in this in this conversation that we were having that my cousin um, facilitated, uh, what's clear to me is that I need to know where my home is, uh, and my home is here, and my home is in this tradition. Uh, and having the confidence of that allows me to really see the the values and the virtues uh, of other traditions that people find their homes in. And you know, I've had this. I felt it when I when I met Bert. I felt like, oh, we're talking the same language. Uh, I had an experience some years ago uh, when I was in, in Bangladesh and somebody had taken me, uh, a friend had taken me to meet a, uh, a Sufi leader way out in the countryside and, and he invited me in for tea. And I felt 
we're speaking the same language, the same language of the of compassion and wisdom, of connection, uh, and we have a different we have different paths, uh, but the same fundamental knowledge. Uh, so that's that's enabled me. Uh, you know, I just I didn't emphasize this. But my Jewish education was pretty dysfunctional. And uh, by the time I was bar mitzvahed, I was pretty clear I never wanted to, uh, didn't want to have anything to do with it in an organized way again. And it's only in recent years that I've begun to, to revisit it and see what is, what is there that that actually does resonate with me instead of instead of rejecting it. And this is, I think, the teaching of people like Desmond Tutu and uh, and Dr. King is they're they're inclusivist. They recognize the the common human values in all of these religious traditions, and that's what's. Uh, that's important to me. And it's really, not only is it important, it's really interesting to me. Uh, you know, uh, I'm interested in that, just like I'm interested in, you know, having, being in relationship with the Theravada monks who are down the block, you know, uh, this, the particularities of their lives are interesting to me because I can see our common humanity. So thank you. For our last question, Ross Blum, please. Good morning, Hosan. Good morning, Ross. Um, when Sojin would lecture uh, and talk about where is home, he would point to his hara, you know, just below his uh, his belly, where we hold our mudra. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your sense of a home or place relative between this physical uh, place in our gut and the physical place of this Ohlone land or wherever we happen to be in the, uh, in the world with the relationship between the two. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that for me, um, we need to feel in order to really, in order to be home in our hara or home in our body, we have to have some experience of homeness or ease where we are and i think they they go it's the same thing with you know being in in relationship if you're in a relationship and you don't feel at home or you don't feel yourself in it then you're not fully able to inhabit your body but if the surroundings are if the surroundings are comfortable, then you can settle in and be in and be in your be in your body, which is ultimately where we have to find our home. Uh, and I think this is this is one of the one of the the examples that we have in uh, you know we have these we have these. Uh, terms of this ordination, home leaving and home dwelling. 
you know, home leaving is at least in an ideal sense that that the monk or nun or practitioner is always at home in their body. They carry their home. We carry our home with us. But it's also true that there are places that are conducive to that. There are places that are familiar and uh, that that put us at ease because our hara is not necessarily located three inches below our navel. Mm -hmm. Our hara is, when you're at home in your hara, then your hara is everywhere, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I really like your answer and response. And also it reminds me of like when there's intimacy, it feels homey or right. Hamish. Hamish. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Thank you.